I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. As Canada watches protests, blockades, and other actions from the Wet'suwet'en land defenders and their allies, we are reminded that protest and civil disobedience are essential to a free and democratic society. Democracy must include direct action, just as it includes legislatures and courts, speeches and informal political chats, industry and civil society, and so on. Some wonder why direct action is important to democracy. What purpose does it serve? For whom? Why not try other means to achieve your ends? To answer these questions and others, in this episode we ask, why protest? I'm joined by Elamine Abdel Mahmoud, curation editor at BuzzFeed News and co-host of the CBC podcast, Party Lines. We'll talk protest, civil disobedience, revolt, and even revolution, focusing on Canada and the world through the lenses of the past, the present, and the future. Now, a quick special note. This episode was recorded as events surrounding the struggle between the Wet'suwet'en and their allies, and Coastal GasLink, its supporters, and the state were unfolding. As sometimes happens, by the time this airs, these events will have made a bit of the commentary in this episode stale. Or they will have made one or both of the participants in the discussion wish they hadn't said certain things, had said certain things differently, or had not said certain things at all. Now to the episode. Uh, you and I are friends. We are longtime friends. So the dynamic might be a little different. We might make jokes. A little more vicious, I was thinking. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm in a light place today. So let's see. I'm never in a light place. Well, I, I said with one of the, some of the feedback I get about the show so far, you know, we're about 14 episodes in, 13, 14 episodes in. Uh, there's not enough debate for your debate show. <laughs> so, so we're going to talk about protests today yes, and, and I'm going to uh, disagree with you just for the sake of it. Can't wait. I'm really <laughs> thrilled to have your disagreement for no reason. So let's talk about protests. I mean, let's start right here. Why do you, why take to the street? Well, you certainly don't take to the street to change things. No. No, that's not the reason. You do it because you're paid by George Soros. You do. <laughs> that's why I do it personally. Yeah, my check hasn't arrived yet. Uh, nor has mine. No, I think you I think you take to the streets to maybe create a story. Um, and you uh -huh. create a story and maybe out of that you introduce a larger narrative and maybe over several years, you know, introduce new terms, um, get more people on your side. But it's like not, it's not going to happen just because you took to the street. I, you know of no big bank, and neither do I, that has been broken up because a bunch of people had a sleepover at Zuccotti Park, you know, in 2011. So it's not like Occupy Wall Street was something that was like, hey, this is totally productive. However, it introduced new terms into, you know, our, our, the our dictionary. The 99%. Exactly. It's a reference point that we still keep using now, like a decade later after those protests. So that's a win. Um, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if they consider it a win, but it has sort of changed the trajectory of the issue. We have different sort of frameworks now. Well, actually, let's get into this. So we're talking about this in the context of, I mean, the wet soda and protests and blockades yeah. the land defenders i mean there's a whole politics behind who's what there that yeah that's a separate issue for our purposes but let's go back to, to occupy wall street mm -hmm. this is a response quite a long time now yes uh, ago now in response to the financial crisis to the thuggery and the theft and malpractice of large banks people take to parks they they're finally calling out the one percent mm-hmm they lasted for two months. And and what did it accomplish? You know, compared to, for instance, the Tea Party movement, mm -hmm. and, and by which I mean, um, do you need to take protest and feed it into something more structural or permanent in order to deliver a result? Well, part of the problem of measuring the success of a protest is that the only reference point we have for measuring those are those sort of institutional means, right? Like they took to the streets, they went to the park, they asked for 10 things, did they get you know, five of those 10 things, then I guess they were halfway successful. Not really the, 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 main, the main successes of that protest, not the, really the main successes of most protests. Um, for the most part, they get people thinking about an issue differently, right? Um, I, I, as an example, I was like not someone who took climate change very seriously for several years. Mm -hmm. um, the climate protests over the last maybe four or five years or so have changed my mind, have changed my mind because I started investing a bit more time into reading the things they were talking about. Nothing has changed, right? Like there's no country that is 
doing enough, we'll say, um, to, to stem that particular tide. But people are thinking about it differently. People have new words um, in their dictionary. And that's a different kind of useful, I guess. I mean, there, there's agenda setting. I mean, the protest, yeah. you get, as you mentioned earlier, you turn into a story, you put on people's you do? mind. Yeah. There's concept creation, 99%, the 1%. Yeah. There's general education. Mm -hmm. People now know more, a little bit more, I think, for instance, in Canada, about indigenous title and the hereditary chief system. I mean, a lot of what they know is not the case. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But some people have learned something. Mm -hmm. So there is that. I'm increasingly of the opinion that protest, climate marches, so on and so forth, are essential but incomplete. That not only do you have to then connect it to some institutional mechanism like elections mm -hmm. or a tea, uh, uh, the Tea Party, the political party is one, but that maybe we aren't radical enough. I mean, I come at protests not my, – my concerns about protests aren't that – that they don't have an effect. It's that they need to be complemented with with something else. Mm -hmm. And I'm look, thinking about it in the context of what we're seeing right now in Canada, mm -hmm. or depending, you know, what we've seen, uh, that we might need to step it up a little bit. I mean, you know, what, what say? Let, let's take the instance of of what Soden. Say that had been a protest and not a blockade. Mm -hmm. Would it have had the same effect on the country? Certainly not. Um, I don't think and, so. And, and they they accomplish different things, right? Like the protests in front of the BC legislature, preventing a bunch of people from getting to work, um, that has some kind of effect, right? That has some the, the, the effect of that ends up on the evening news. You see um, a global journalist who's you know who hands over his bagel and then has to climb. Also, over a that. friend of mine, as it happens, it was, listen, I, I the knew it was great. I just want to say I knew Richard Zussman was a superhero <laughs> before I had to see him <laughs> climb up the stairs with the bagels before he was famous. Uh, yeah, like so that has that has a sort of a, a, an immediately attention grabbing effect. Um, but when you see the blockades, to me, they're playing an entirely different game, right? Like the, the the blockades are actually about saying all this trying to seed a narrative has not worked. Um, this is now just about uh, stopping everything, stopping movement until we get what we want, until we feel like we are heard, because everything else we've done. The thing about you take to the street with a sign, it just hasn't worked. Like none of those things have actually had an effect. Um, so there's, they're sort of in two different realms as protests. How far do you think these protests should go? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I'm, I'm trying to probe uh, the, the limits of your radicalism. I want, I want to know how radical you are. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to try to out-radical you a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, well, listen, the, the conversation has been, like every column has been about the rule of law. Yes. Um, the rule of law and thank God for white centrists. That's <laughs> my favorite kinds of people. Yeah. Um. I, I, the and these these talks about the rule of law. What they dictate is saying, okay, I guess the limit of your protest um, is when it starts to impact another person. That is explicitly not what the limit of a protest is, right? Like you are permitted to impact as many people as you like, um, and it is, ends up being up to the courts to determine when it is too far. Um, until courts make that determination, there's no such thing. So um, I keep seeing these columns about the rule of law, and I keep seeing these comments about, well, you're inconveniencing all these people. Um, all these products are not getting to where they need to go. Um, and there's a there's like a, just like a lacking recognition that the law actually allows for that. And then there's the question of at what point do we need to allow a protest to go beyond the law? Because um, in order for it to be effective, it can't actually like play within the rules that were set out for it. I mean, civil disobedience is by definition yeah. disobeying the law right. with nonviolently. Nonviolently. To discomfort people yes. to make a point. Right. right. So, like, so you have to push their limits somehow until, I guess, at a certain point, police say, okay, you've been breaking the law for X amount of time. Um, and so I find that Trudeau's response has kind of forced a different kind of conversation, right? Um, you're seeing a lot of liberals, um, I, by this I mean small liberals, who are kind of hanging around and trying to like – restrain their rage because you can clearly see that they're siding with um, the idea that, look, as long as it becomes an inconvenience, it's got to be stopped. But you have a prime minister who's saying that ending this pro these protests and ending these blockades peacefully is much more important. Um, I'm interested in how that's sort of messing with their idea of their ra radicalism because it's obviously challenging it. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if the prime minister's talk is going to keep going up if he keeps doing that. 
I've got to give him. I mean, I've got to give the the government and the prime minister credit. You? I'm going to. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have to say, I mean, as much as we get moments of of word salad that I wouldn't order off the menu. Sure. I, I, the government has also been, I think, very clear, and the prime minister has been very clear that everyone ought to just chill out mm-hmm. and that we're not going to go in and start pushing people around and rounding up protesters. And I yeah. think a conservative government would have been different. And I much prefer this prime minister's response to the blockades mm-hmm. uh, to that of, of what I assume the response of a conservative prime minister would be. And, it's interesting and, that they, and I think that hurts him. I think that hurts him to a certain the extent. Prime yeah, I do. I think it undermines him a little bit. But I think it's the right thing. Right. It's hard to do the thing that undermines you. Yeah. When it's you know when you perceive it. To but be it's the, the right, right thing. thing. Um, and maybe he looks at it and thinks, or this gets escalated and then we're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. But either way, good for him for recognizing it and for sending because you know they're not the the government cannot is not meant to order the RCMP what to do. Mm-hmm. Canada does not, despite the desire of some conservatives, have a Stasi. Mm-hmm. Thank God. One of the things that makes Canada. A livable place is that we don't do state police, mm-hmm. but you can send signals about the sort of boundaries of what's acceptable or not. And I think the liberals have sent the right signals. Yeah, I, uh, I keep waiting for someone to push Andrew Shear on. Um, well, what do you want people to do? Because he keeps, or Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole. Sure, they keep saying that they want these blockades to end, and then when they're kind of pushing me, like, do you mean you want to send in the police? Um, he, the, 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 they're not answering that question, right? Like they're just kind of deferring back to the fact that it's a prime minister's problem and he's the one who's got to solve it. But the, the subtext here is that there's got to be something that's done. Um, we don't know what, but there's just this one option um, that's still on the table. And it's an interesting kind of subtext to, to, to sort of keep unmentioned. So I I think about this in the, in the immediate terms of what we're seeing here. I think mm-hmm. about it in past terms, what we've seen in Canada around... Well, the climate march, I don't know more, several years ago. Sure. Um, some anti-war stuff, well, during, uh, you know, anti-Iraq war mm-hmm. movements, uh, anti-trade movements in mm-hmm. the 1990s and early 2000s. Uh, you know, the Winnipeg general strike was about 100 years ago. Sure was. It uh, was profoundly disruptive, but also had an effect on on consolidating the labor movement. Yeah. That was 30,000 people walking off the job, right? That's... You know, that's not... Uh, it's not nothing. Not only is it not nothing, I'm not sure it's a thing you can replicate in modern day. I mean, people who are non-unionized walked off the job um, yeah. in that in that. Well, there's lots story. of non-unionized people here now. <laughs> yeah, but it's like the conditions that led them to walk off the job, you know, 100, 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, were like low wages, check. Check, yeah. Um, poor sort of city conditions, check. Um, and, and no one in power doing anything. And it's not like... It's not like any of those things have gone away, but well, we do have the existential threat of climate change now. We do. I don't know if that's pressing enough to send people into a general strike. Certainly, some forces have been trying, and I don't know how successful you would say they are. No, I don't think. I don't think. Well, I mean, we had the climate march, but I, I yeah. don't think. I, I think you have to apply pain mm-hmm. at some point to get a response. So this is these are the limits of your radicalism: is that you have to apply. A serious kind of pain. my limit. The limits of my radicalism is that I don't think anyone should become physically violent unless the state has become so fundamentally unjust that there's no other way to address those challenges. There's a time when the operation of the machine. That was a Mario Savio speech. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but oh, well, no, I know. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious that you can't take part. You can't even passively yeah. take part. I guess that those would be the limits of my radicalism. Is that yeah, I and I think, I mean, there's a debate to be had about the sort of evolutionary, I wouldn't call the evolutionary of, of British democracy, the evolution of British democracy or Canadian democracy not violent. They mm-hmm. were violent. That's, that's an error. They weren't revolutionary in the sense that there was a moment of explosion like in France in 1789 or in the United States, uh, just a little ahead of that. Um, or in Mao's China or, the, or 1917 in Russia or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were violent, but they weren't revolutionary in that sense. I think it's a reasonable question to ask, would France have been better off without 1789? Mm-hmm. Would France have taken the British approach over time without the loss of life, without the rise of empire, without the failure of several republics, mm-hmm. uh, and, and have been better off without it? And yet... 
I think if you look at the Arab world, for instance, and look mm -hmm. at the Arab Spring, you could ask the same question. I think the answer would be um, people don't want to wait around to find out. And <laughs> no, why they should they? I, you, they absolutely should not. Um, what we saw with the Arab Spring was things eventually just went back to the way they were. Yeah. Right. Um, in most of the most of the <clears throat> in most of the countries uh, where there was a substantial revolution, you saw a bunch of power changes. It's not like Egypt is much better off now than it was ten years ago. That was an incredible moment of showing what the power of protest is. Um, but it's like it has not lasted that long. It has not sort of made this impact that they thought that it would end up making. Um, which is to say, like again, like protest is not necessarily about this sort of immediate change. It's about Probably it's about catharsis, right? Mm -hmm. It's about it's about a bunch of people gathering in a place and being like, I feel this way too. And that's important um, to see other people who recognize your cause as like the most important one. Um, but then also just introducing these ideas um, that are that might be there long term. We now have something to compare, you know, modern day, like, well, I guess like 2020 Egypt to mm -hmm. um, when we look back at 2011 and that sort of hopeful moment of like things could be different. So, I mean, this is a question that I struggle with. If you have a, a local movement, a revolutionary fervor organization, clearly the will to push back against an oppressive regime, whether mm -hmm. it's in um, in Egypt or in Tunisia <clears throat> or in Syria mm -hmm. or Venezuela, where it might be, you have the West and... Uh, who's sitting and sort of thinking, well, we would like to see, well, some people would like to see mm -hmm. uh, some form of, of local democracy emerge that's palatable to the people. Mm -hmm. And yet, I think the same people who want to see that, many of whom would decry in the imperialist West intervening, mm -hmm. putting their thumb on the scale, in part because, quite frankly, we can't be trusted. Sure. We do Long not have a good of... track record. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact... I would struggle to point to any success. I'm trying to think of, of, of what of you would hold up as a, of an intervention that you would hold up as a model. I can't really nope, think of any. Uh, there there really. may be one exception that proves the rule. Sure. But how do we process something like that where we say, well, we want this to happen. We look at the horrors of Syria. There's only so much you can do without fundamentally changing the regimes and the institutions. And yet every time we intervene, we make an awful mess of it. Mm -hmm. How do you process something like that? Well, I don't. But if, no. some, if, some, if, you know, if, if a sort of realist was sitting next to me, um, someone from the realism school of thought and said, well, at the end of the day, there are just interests, you know, at the end of the day, there's just your... So any intervention is going to be inherently self-interested. No matter what. Yeah. Um, and, and as cynical as that view is, I think it is quite cynical. Um, I end up kind of subscribing to it. I have no option but to subscribe to it. Is that there, I have not seen an intervention that has not, you know, ended up being... Um, self-interested. Maybe in the case of some humanitarian ones, um, like say um, Rwanda, for example, um, Canada's involvement in that. But even that has its critics, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating to me that I don't want to become a nihilist <laughs> in real time. There's, there's a risk that we descend into nihilism. But, but even think of the post-Soviet world. There were local movements that resisted mm -hmm. communist rule. I think, for instance, worker solidarity movements in Poland, union trade union movements in Poland, that played a huge role in throwing off the yoke of the Soviet Union. Uh, in, part, in part, in mm -hmm. part, um, alongside the Catholic Church, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, or you look at Hungary. And then um, two or three decades later, you see a sort of deeply disconcerting backsliding into authoritarianism. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously Russia itself, mm -hmm. which I mean, I, I wish I had been sort of intellectually of age in the early 1990s. I wonder if I would have thought that liberal democracy was coming to Russia, <laughs> that I had never read or understood anything about Russia and assumed that it would just become a liberal democracy. And, you think uh, you would have read Fukuyama and been like, yep, this sounds accurate. I, well, I'd like to think the, the not. Science, the science but, pointed to it. There was that sort of optimism at the time, right? Like, 
Yeah, and I, but okay. I wonder if we're not repeating that same optimism where we think that, that these protest movements, these revolutionary movements, won't be undermined and reversed with time. Because I, I look at them mm-hmm. and I see a history of basket cases emerging. Now, one of the responses is often, well, it didn't work because the West intervened. Sure. Cuba didn't work because the West intervened in Cuba. Um, Soviet communism didn't work because it had to fight American capitalism and imperialism in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I wonder at some point whether or not there's not something else happening there. What do you mean? That it isn't the case that that um, when you destroy institutions mm-hmm. or you break down institutions, you risk making an awful mess of things that you can't fix in in either the short run or the long run. And this right. is my little Burkean. So this I, I'm a deeply conflicted radical because you know 30% of me is Burkean and subscribes to that belief that you don't tear down a fence until you know why it was built. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I struggle with this idea that we can remake these institutions that we have the capacity to do so. Yeah, I find that fascinating in the context of of looking at what governments have achieved or not achieved when it comes to indigenous peoples in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not an expert in it, and, and I certainly can't speak for indigenous peoples. I wonder if there's been a government that's been better than the Trudeau government, mm-hmm. and yet that might be damning with faint praise. Mm-hmm. Right, let's... And yet objectively, they are better. I mean, and, and I would say, sure. and, and the country is better. But that's like being the fastest turtle. Right, like that's yeah. It's not. It's not a victory to to to, to speak of. And yet, um, but, and yet, and yet, the government though is is caught within the boundaries of the sort of settler colonial majority. Mm-hmm. And then, so let's get into this. Is another issue I struggle with, and, and let's think about this strategically. Uh, if the Trudeau government were to ramp up their efforts, mm-hmm. um, what would be the median voter response? And does that lead to a backlash that gives you the Tories? And isn't that worse? Interesting. Um, I, I mean, this is class. This is the classic challenge. Sure. That is, is if you adopt the things you want to adopt, if you do, mm. if you go whole hog, um, then then you lose. If the carbon tax is a hundred dollars a ton and mm-hmm. not thirty dollars a ton or fifty dollars yeah. a ton, you lose the next election, and then you, you get the Tories, and then you're worse off. Um, far be it from me to defend incrementalism. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make you. I want you I'm, to defend incrementalism. I'm, I'm not your guy. You can take your time. Um, but 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 it is a calculus that all governments make uh, is saying okay we could make this much progress in this direction um, without risking our political capital and then the next government that comes along um, would just undo it and we've seen that happen a bunch of times Huge. just here in Ontario policy lurch right? like, is what it's called all the yeah. time it's called policy lurch it's called policy lurch There's, it's it's such an established thing that it's got a name well yeah because I mean yeah. look look at the history of this country or a lot of countries especially countries that use single member plurality electoral systems. We're mm. not going to make this discussion about electoral reform, we can do it. but it is a first past the post problem, mm-hmm. not exclusively. A government governs for a decade. They lose. The next government comes in. They spend the first couple of years undoing everything the last government has done, unless it's so good that they can't touch it. Right. Like the Canada child benefit. I mean, one of the, sure. I think one of the major achievements of the liberal government has been that not only have they achieved good lifting children out of poverty with the CCB. Mm-hmm. They made it good enough that opposition parties couldn't dismantle it. It's impossible to undo that. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Uh, I I don't know where the support is. I haven't seen a lot of polling on this, um, but I don't know where the support is for uh, like a deeper sort of commitment to reconciliation. I think like broadly speaking, it has a good brand, if we may speak about it in such crude terms. Like Probably speaking, people are on board with the reconciliation. They haven't had to define it. They haven't had to define what it means. They haven't had to define um, and understand that it might mean like giving up um, certain, giving up certain privileges, giving up certain privileges like your province being able to decide that it can put a pipeline wherever it wants. That's something that you might have to give up um, if we are to arrive at like a sort of more wholesome and fulsome definition of, of reconciliation. Um, I would suspect that the support for that is not especially high, but we don't have the numbers on that. Well, let's chase down this idea a little bit then. Let's do it. The, one of the, the challenges with protest, direct action, civil disobedience, so on, is that it, it reminds people that effective direct action makes people uncomfortable. It rattles them. Mm-hmm. It asks a lot of them. It also potentially invites a backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reveals, I think, the, the 
the tension between those who want change in theory, those who support things like reconciliation, climate action in theory, and the fact that they're utterly unwilling to actually do anything about it. Sure. You know, think about this in climate. You you poll people on climate change, and you say, "Is it a problem?" Yes. Uh, is it our problem? Yes. Mm-hmm. Should we do something about it? Yes. Do you want to chip in a ten bucks a month? No. <laughs> no. Yep. No. It's not really. Please. Yeah. There's got to be someone else who can do it. And so I wonder that how do we get meaningful change? to address structural problems, big mm-hmm. structural problems, climate justice, climate mm-hmm. change, indigenous justice, when uh, those in the streets and those who are putting their bodies on the line through acts of civil disobedience and so on mm-hmm. are pushing for it and are willing to c- to contribute something and to sacrifice, mm-hmm. but the sort of median voter majority aren't. Well, if we could solve that problem, boy, I could solve every problem tomorrow, Dave. But I'll, I'll yeah. say this, though. The, tr- the approach that Trudeau is taking, which is largely one of rhetoric, is actually not the worst approach because fundamentally, like these are ideas that you have to seed in order to convince people to be on your side. Um, and I've, I've long been sort of suspicious of Trudeau's liking and, and tending towards the speechifying. But I actually think like this is one area where um, talking helps and talking more helps and doing more town halls actually helps. Like it helps to, to have these conversations and to, to see someone who is in power, having to actually respond to those critiques and say like, no, 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 I hear you, but this is why we should do it. It's not, that's not going to happen in question period, right? <clears throat> it's not going to happen when the shadow minister of whatever, um, is screaming at the top of their lungs that, you know, you're doing a disservice to, to the people. Um, it's going to happen on a much more sort of ground level. Um, and, and I think the rhetoric helps with that. Is he successful? I don't know. Is he the best at it? I also don't know. Um, but damn, is he committed to it? Well, and I will say this. I mean, again, I will defend the prime minister and the government on this through Gramsci. <laughs> Please. Half through Gramsci. I'm, I'm going to give and take away here. Yeah. Let me start by giving. You know, there is an argument to make that you have to manufacture a, a sort of cultural, intellectual framework mm-hmm. in which you can do the work of reconciliation and the work of pursuing climate action, climate yeah. justice. Mass change of any. Yeah. yeah. Or you can have literally a revolutionary movement and you can try to do it that way. But we have lots of evidence that the revolutionary movements create at least an awful short-term mess. Yes. By definition, they are chaotic and disruptive and yeah. remake institutions very, yeah. very quickly. Though they may be sometimes justified. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, or, and, and in fact, often though, invite counter-revolutions that then become. Yeah. And now we have to do this in the context of totalitarian surveillance technologies <laughs> and right. things, you know, things very like social, social credit scores via apps and yeah. surveillance and AI or Clearview AI and, and all these other thuggish surveillance tools. Mm-hmm. But so, so I, I, I think on the one hand, you do have to manufacture that sort of superstructure within which you can um, pursue these changes. Mm-hmm. Now, you, we can distill that to you need to get people on board. You do. And yet, isn't there a risk that it gets co-opted and the rhetoric doesn't really lead to anything or doesn't lead to anything sufficient? That becomes a matter of how much trust you have in a, in a politician, right? Um, that risk is high. That risk is always high. Um, and there are people who won't trust a politician regardless of the stripe. Um, but doing the work of trying to get people on board um, is, is actually like intellectually challenging work. Um, I think it's a remarkable sort of accomplishment of this government that it's made it politically because I think socially has been for some time the case but it's made it politically um, unwelcome to to be critical of the reconciliation project and I think that's yeah. good I think that is, that is a good thing also politically unwelcome to be critical of uh, uh, Israel <laughs> that's been long the case yeah. yeah in this country but anyway no I mean I, mean, I, I yeah. find it fascinating that I mean they're I mean, it cuts different ways, for instance. Of course, I mean, so, of course. You know, it is also... This country's had a pretty long history of that particular... I think, yeah, right? I mean, condemnation of, of, of uh, for instance, support of BDS... Yeah. Yeah. Um, ...has become unwelcome in a way I think that is 
unhelpful for a free society. It's actually, you can be more critical, as has been said a million times before, um, of what Israel is doing in Israel than you can right. um, in a place like Canada, because uh, Israel has a much more diverse um, sort of media ecosystem. Um, then and then the, for some reason we have this agreement of like no no you can only go so far as criticizing Israel um, at least here yeah but uh, yeah like I think they've made it politically uh, they've made it politically unwelcome to you know um, be too skeptical of climate change you can still be a little bit skeptical yeah there those people do exist they have um, a lot of space in some papers but uh, I'm not hearing a lot of conservative politicians who are like climate change is not real like they don't go that far. Um, and I think that is in part, you know, the work of what the liberals have done in terms of making a, you know, a central piece of what they're talking about. There is a consolidation happening yeah, yeah. of, of I, I think, some, uh, again, of a commitment to reconciliation. Yeah. Now, we can have a discussion about what that means in, in mm -hmm. concrete terms. But that becomes about that trust of the politician, right? Like, do you... Do you believe that, do you know, do, do you believe it when Justin Trudeau says these things? Because the rhetoric is working, certainly, yeah. right? Like the, the rhetoric is doing his job. Do you believe that he's putting um, the money where his mouth is? Or do you think that, you know, or do you think that you should be skeptical of it? Is he not going far enough? Certainly the NDP are like, we're very much into this project and we don't think you're going far enough. Um, Elizabeth May, same deal. Um, conservatives are like, look. We're all on board with this reconciliation thing, but um, we have some questions about how far this is going. There's a, a concept in political science known as the civilizing force of hypocrisy. That sounds like an amazing name. Please tell me what it means. It is. It is you know, you might be hypocritical about something, mm -hmm. but if people hold you to those standards, then it has a has the effect of civilizing you. So. You know, maybe maybe you support a policy, but you're actually a hypocrite. You don't really believe in it. You don't live it, whatever. But if that becomes the norm, if that becomes the expectation, then mm -hmm. all of a sudden you have set it, and now you're bound by it, and everyone's going to end up there. I think that's a large part, you know. I think it's the foundation of liberalism. Um, I was going to say it's certainly the the part of the story of the first term um, of Trudeau's prime minister. Well. Yeah, I think so too. And and I mean, lots of governments in Canadian history. Of course. We cover and talk about protest and civil disobedience. Now, mm. you are uh, what is widely known as a real journalist. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't call me that. I mean, I'm just, For I'm some just reason calling when it as I see it. You, it you, felt like a. Like I'm a just dig. calling it as I see it. And what I see okay. is you're a real journalist. Thanks, you, you work for BuzzFeed. I do. You write the. Um, I'm assuming award-winning. I don't know if there's awards for newsletters. Not but yet, award. but one day. I mean, there's awards. For, am I, yeah. This industry, all we ever do. He's like, hey, you're doing a good thing. There's an awful lot of awards that we hand. Big sticker. Um, there's nothing successful people enjoy more than giving one another awards. Yeah, yeah. But, they trade it among yeah. each other. Yeah. And assuming other people care. But uh, you, you edit, curate, produce mm -hmm. the BuzzFeed newsletter. Mm -hmm. You're the the... Is it curate, curating editor? Is that uh, the curation editor? Curation yeah. editor. Yeah, you're a real journalist. I am um, something adjacent to a mm -hmm. journalist. Mm -hmm. Is that what you? Is that what's on your business card? I uh, I can't remember what it says on my business card. I, I made them myself. No one gives me a business card. Right. Um, I I say whatever I want, however I want, and that's mm -hmm. no one's looking over my shoulder. That's a good business card. It's a it's a good it's a good deal. Mm -hmm. Traditional journalists, I think, are a little nervous when they're covering protests, civil disobedience, and so on and so forth, that they, they might not know how to process it. And they certainly um, have some internal debates and debates amongst themselves sure. about what to call things. Mm -hmm. So in case of, again, what Soden, uh, land defender versus protester. Mm -hmm. In the case of the quote-unquote counter-protesters, who uh, the thugs who went onto the track and took it upon themselves to quote-unquote enforce the law. Yeah. Uh, I think I call them vigilantes, but you'll note the media call them counter-protesters. Mm -hmm. how, how can journalists cover protests in a way that is meaningful um, it, without compromising themselves as journalists? Mm -hmm. uh, thanks for the easy question. Yeah. Fix uh, it, and then <laughs> I'll give you an award. Thanks, man. That's all I've ever wanted. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been tracking I've been tracking the outlets. Yeah, um, who calls who, who calls, what? Well, yeah, yeah, like you know, National Observer, 
use land defenders, the Thai land defenders, um, Global Mail protesters. I've just seen individual journalists sort of like write around the word protester without having to say it. Um, they and like they use like longer like, phrases. Sounds like the CBC. But here's the thing: well, like, listen, I'm also an employee yes. of the CBC. Yes. But uh, but like those phrases, the phrases are like people who oppose the pipeline, um, people who are ag- who are against the pipeline, people in um, solidarity. Yeah. With what so it is. That's exactly. Um, which I think is, I actually don't like as as clunky of, as a phrase as it is. Um, it's probably somewhere in the right place because. Um, Land Defender is unquestionably a sympathetic coverage. I don't know if that's a bad thing, but it is definitely a sympathetic coverage. Um, And I think your job as a journalist is to inform people. And if people read the word Land Defender, I wonder if they'll continue reading to the the rest of the story. Or they feel like your coverage is slanted. But you could explain it, right? So, for instance, sure, you could. Or or you could make a distinction that um, a settler... And and I use Chelsea Vowell's definition of settler, which is a, 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 an individual of, of I'm paraphrasing of European dis, non-indigenous individual of European descent who mm-hmm. is part of the socio-political majority. Mm-hmm. That is a settler. That makes me, for instance, a settler. Mm-hmm. A settler who is blockading in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. You might call them a protester, but. Uh, an indigenous person on unceded indigenous land is surely not a protester. That person is sure they are on their unceded land defending it from what in different circumstances we would call quite simply an invasion mm-hmm. of a foreign police service on unceded land because that land does not belong to them full stop. So I, I think one of my frustrations with the media and watching what's been happening is that they don't they aren't willing to make that distinction because I think they worry I'm going to be charitable. I think they worry yeah. that it's political. Some of them, I think, just have no concept of it whatsoever because they don't know what they're talking about. Sure. But I think most of them are just nervous that that's going to be seen as political. I, but isn't I, that a distinction that's reasonable? Totally a distinction that I think can apply here. I think that the, the work becomes in how do you communicate that in every story that you write? Um, you can Just make, write it in, can't you? Uh, not every time. Because I, I think that <laughs> I imagine adding, you know, like another 50 to 100 words to every story. Um, I'm not sure if people will read all those stories. Yeah. That's... My gut feeling. I mean, it doesn't but fit in the headline either, I guess, does it? Well, I mean, yeah, the a definition of land defender versus protester certainly does not make for a good headline. Um, there's also that con- concern, I think, um, where media becomes rightfully or wrongfully um, a bit too obsessed with, with, with eyeballs. Um, at a certain point, like your job is to report the news. You should be more concerned about the quality of it than how many people are going to read, read it. Um, but some of those calculations, I am sure, end up coming down to if we put this word in the headline, people are more likely or less likely to read it. Oh, yeah, I think that's probably mm-hmm. true. I, I, you know, I'm the sort of writer that I think about my audience when I'm writing in the sense that I want to write accessible things. Mm-hmm. I hope people read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I certainly don't care if they don't because I haven't called it something. <laughs> that said, sure. You don't. You're not uh, in the media empire business. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not the one, but I also don't write the headlines. Right. That's true. And we've all been the victim of a bad headliner. Yes, too. we have. That's part of the process. That's part of the process. Yeah. And, and it's worth reminding for listeners who, who might not know, writers very rarely write their own. Almost headlines. never. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I want to close out in the last ten minutes or so on. Um, uh, a sort of dig into uh, the, the specific protest environment and ethos in Canada mm-hmm. to bring it around back to where we started. I had, I was writing a piece about automation robots one time and I interviewed this um, old Marxist professor. Mm-hmm. I won't say his name because I don't want to, I, I haven't asked him if I can okay. jaw jaw on about him, but he said to me, you know, He's from the U.S. If the revolution ever happens, it's not going to start in Canada. Oh. Now that was... It feels pointed. It was. I mean, I, he was from the sort of east coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. That was several years ago. Now, I wonder if that's true. Because looking at people on the streets during the climate march, which mm-hmm. was 
unprecedented for Canada. Mm-hmm. Looking at the mobilization uh, that we've seen around uh, Indigenous rights and reconciliation, scanning the sort of anxiety and anger and frustration, but also hope that I think is permeating mm-hmm. the country, it strikes me as a moment to borrow an old revolutionary phrase that where the power might just be lying in the street waiting for someone to come pick it up. That's that's hopeful. Well, I wonder if that's the case. What's um, your read of the Canadian ethos? I think we are at a, at a nice moment with protest, um, sort of wielding that power, using it a bit more frequently. Um, a revolution implies some people having to give up a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure we're there. I know. I don't think we're gonna. I don't. I no. don't think we're headed towards revolution. But I wonder no. if we're headed towards like a, like a sustained mass sort of... demonstration that lead to structural change. I mean, measurable structural change. I would say that over just this last term, um, you have to have a government that's sympathetic to it. So yeah. I think that's helpful. A government that can actually be shamed. Um, and that's when you have that, then you have a lot of power, right? So uh, specifically with Justin Trudeau, he's someone who's built himself um, as the prime minister who's going to, you know, as a climate change prime minister, also as a reconciliation prime minister. Um, when you then hold up a mirror and say, in these ways, you're not meeting the things that you set up yeah. um, to meet, then like that's where their power is. Like right. that's where like the actual bargaining chip is. Perhaps especially during the context of, uh, within the context of a minority parliament. Exactly. So there's th- that power is amplified right now, but I think they just have it in general when it comes to um, Trudeau. Are you telling me that Stephen Harper would have been more sympathetic to, to, to you know, um, that many people taking to the streets? Not sure I would buy that. No, and, and this is what irritates right. me. I mean, you know, I, I think the Trudeau government is moderately responsive. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think, more responsive than I expected them to be. Exactly, yeah. and I think qualitatively and clearly better than the conservative government would be. And it, what do you I mean? am not. I'm. I'm not a liberal. I'm. In fact, I'm not. An, I'm not anything. Mm-hmm. I'm a democratic socialist. Mm-hmm. Um, but it irritates me when people say, "Well, liberal, you know, liberal Tory, same old story. They're the same," or say, "You know, Republicans and Democrats, well, they're the same." Mm-hmm. That's demonstrably untrue. Mm-hmm. Stephen Harp, look at how Stephen Harper responded to Idle No More, and imagine how Stephen Harper would have responded to the to the Wet'suwet'en resistances, and compare that to what the Liberals are, are doing. I think there's a qualitative difference there, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't push. That doesn't mean we shouldn't criticize. There's a lot mm-hmm. to push. There's a lot to criticize, but I do think it makes a substantive difference. And, mm-hmm. and I think uh, what I say to people is, who are organizing and so on and so forth, you know, how do we make change? How do we change? You know, what, what works? I use an old Picasso line that, you know, opportunity should find you at work. Mm. That Chris Pratt once, not Christopher Pratt, the artist, not the superhero. Well, he's a superhero of a, t- of a different time. Type. But, yeah, yeah. but Christopher Pratt once sort of paraphrased uh, Picasso and said to me, you know, when opportunity finds you, it should find you at work. And I feel a little bit like that when it comes to protest movements and civil disobedience is that mm-hmm. you, you you spend your time organizing, you spend your time building, and there's a critical juncture that that comes up for whatever reason and you can exploit it. And, and mm. so you wait and you move. And I, I think that might be now, that there's a critical juncture that's opened up around indigenous reconciliation, around climate justice and climate action, a minority parliament, mm-hmm. and a, res- a fairly responsive and slightly weakened government. <clears throat> uh, yes, but even that has its limits, right? I'm so, just saying we need to seize the means of production <laughs> sometime within the next six weeks. Like, let's start now and we'll get there. Um, I I will say that like there, there are obvious limits to this. Um, Justin Trudeau being um, possibly shamed into action about climate change is not going to stop the approval of the tech mine. I don't think. Like at least, like all signs at this point are pointing towards um, that massive project being approved. Uh, so that's a limitation. So yes, to a certain extent, a window has opened up, um, and also that's arguably that is the work of protest is like moving the window ever so slightly when you get a chance to, or closing um, some windows. <laughs> 
or closing some windows when you get a chance to. Yeah. Um, in this particular case, there's there are wins to be registered for sure. I would caution, I guess, against being so optimistic that taking to the streets means your list of demands will be met. I don't think that's what this government is sort of set up as their expectations. Um, I don't think they're going to meet those expectations. Um, having said that, like it's it's hard to speculate what someone like Stephen Harper would respond to you know, when it comes to these protests. Um, judging by maybe Andrew Shear's response, if that's any gauge, um, he would be a bit more closely aligned with um, saying the rule of law must be enforced and, and leaving it, you know, leaving it there. Um, but what one thing that we know for sure is that there are at least some places where Trudeau is willing to give up whatever power he has yeah. in order to appear as someone who is invested in those causes. That in itself is a power, a power in the hands of the protesters. Um, it's exploitable to a certain extent. I don't know how far. Well, I, I mean, I, I think I like the word exploitable. I mean, I think I think that I really mean, is the, the it's the, an the, adversarial the, relationship. The right? essence of it, and, and I this will be a different episode someday. That I, I think politics in Canada is is has been moribund for a long time. That you know, when we think about not just action in the street, protest and civil disobedience, but the political discourse, certainly the mainstream political discourse in Canada and the elite consensus in Ottawa and beyond mm -hmm. is is so utterly centrist and unimaginative that we just don't even think differently in mm -hmm. the public sphere. It is, it's extraordinarily narrow and that we try to treat politics as technocracy, as if the point of politics is to... Uh, apply management techniques yeah. and resolutions to every problem instead of conflict. And We've had decades of managerial governments. In yeah. This yeah. And, yeah. And, and it's a problem. And I think it's going to come round on itself. Well, one way to jolt um, those governments out of the sort of managerial habits of being like, well, we'll move slightly to the left or we'll move slightly to the right on these issues um, is, is protest, right? Like is, is letting, like communicating very clearly to the government. They're like, no, if you move that way, you have the support of some people, yeah. whichever direction. Um, that's that's a useful function of protest, um, but it's not. I guess like when we return to that word exploitable, it is an adversarial relationship, right? Like it's like a it's like a public trying to force itself upon a government, which is um, not the way that it should be. Yeah, I'll have to think about that one. Yeah, I certainly I, I certainly do want to see more. A grittier politics. Mm -hmm. I think we need a grittier politics, and and I don't mean by that nasty politics. I mean yeah. I, I think what people when people hear they think about adversarial politics or they think of conflict in politics, no. they think we're talking about you know meme wars mm -hmm. and calling people names. But that's not. I'm talking about people who enter the public sphere and tell uncomfortable truths mm -hmm. and propose solutions to problems that aren't. Well, let's kick it up to the to the ministry to let them play around with it for sure. a year or two. You have to be somewhat invested in the political process in order for that to be true. Like I think there's a pretty high degree of of public cynicism. We've seen it, you know, if, yeah. if there's no other tell, I guess, like just like the voter turnout. Um, there's it's and like, political engagement. I mean, the political yeah. engagement is sort of semi-anemic. Sure. I mean, I this is another thing that irritates me is that I have never in my life met an apathetic person. Hmm. I've met alienated people. Yes. But anytime you meet someone, I mean, apathy implies that people generally do not care. Yeah. Uh, you meet someone, you might say, are you apathetic about politics? They might even self-identify as apathetic. And then you say, well, do you care about schools? Do you care about roads? Do you care about taxes? Yeah. Do you care about climate? Do you care about indigenous reconciliation? Do you care about the wage gap? Do you, well, they, they care about lots of those things. Yeah. They're alienated. They're not apathetic. And I think part of of remaking our politics is about having a protest movement, having civil disobedience, but having a public sphere in which people can actually come and assert some self-government. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, like that sphere would require that some kind of feedback of like when you actually insert yourself into it, you get some kind of response. You get some kind of response that isn't um, totally being ignored. Uh, and I think for, you know, for a couple of decades at least, uh, people have kind of felt that impact of being ignored. Well, we're going to pull back the curtain for a second. Uh, this is being recorded ahead of it airing, and 
science. And so, yeah, it is, it isn't coming to you live. Uh, that's why we sound so polished all the time. But uh, we, a lot of what we say today might be slightly stale by the time this, this goes to air. So even while we were talking, we have found out that the, the prime minister has suggested that the barricades must come down. Now. So we finished recording. And yes. now we're adding this little bit off the top to remind people that uh, they ought to think about this in the context of three or four days before it airs. Right. Um, and it's also, I think it, it, it changes the conversation a little bit um, because one of the things that we talked about was the limit of protests. Um, and we talked a lot about uh, the ways that the prime minister has been dealing with the protests and the blockades in this country um, and being tolerant and patient of them. And that patience appears to have had reached its limit. And I think that's interesting too. Well, so we'll have to follow up someday down the road. Sure. And I, I would ask the same patience from our listeners as we, you know, just try to get through the day and do the best we can collect, um, uh, try to do the best we can contextualizing yes. the news that we have at the moment. Uh, I think the broader points nonetheless stand. For sure. Regardless of what happens here. Um, I, I think this little revolution here at the table will stand the test of time. <laughs> and sadly, we have come to time, but I want to say a couple of things. First of all, my thanks to you. My pleasure, uh, pal. Alameen uh, Abdel Mahmoud. How did I do? You nailed it. Did great. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much for joining me <clears throat> and for having this conversation. Uh, my thanks to Amira Ahmad uh, for producing um, an excellent podcast as ever. I could not do it without her. Uh, and to all of those out there, let me just say that um, I I hope to see you in the streets <laughs> and I stand in solidarity with you. I really do. And if you see a moment, I encourage you uh, to get out there and to take it. Uh, so thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for your revolutionary fervor. And we'll talk to you again soon.